Good morning. Today's passage of scripture is Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Friends, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with us as we look at an an astounding passage of Scripture. Um, And we look at it in context as we're working our way through this Uh, gospel of Mark, and we see some amazing things that uh, our God is revealing to his church uh, as we give attention together. Um, This morning, we find Jesus again, center of the passage, and we find him in perfect control of the situation. We find, uh, actually, as I was sort of take, took the passage and I pay attention to what each verse is uh, sort of saying and how it's moving the story forward. And one of the things that I do is I try to understand the scriptures is I try to pay attention to, to how verses are sort of grouped together uh, and how they're moving forward, things forward well and try to sort of give them a little topic uh, to the side. And they're actually often form the points of the sermon. And this morning, if you look at the way the story moves forward, you'll see that there are sort of four movements through a passage this morning. The first thing that we see is Jesus made his disciples go. And then secondly, Jesus went to pray. Third, Jesus walks out to the disciples in their distress. And then fourth, it's the disciples who are distressed. And astounded. Now, as I looked at those four things, I thought, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. Jesus is in absolute control, and nobody else is. That's what's going on here. Again, it's actually a theme that's working its way through the Gospel of Mark over and over again. We find Jesus is the master of the situation. Even situations that are dire and severe, Jesus is the master of the situation, and the disciples And all those who are around them are a people who are dependent. This is a good thing for us to see. Now I've gone off and given you all the sermon points. Hopefully you'll stay and hang out and hear how we're going to unpack those together. Let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is clear. Um, While we'll talk about some things that are astounding, um, they're beautiful in your scriptures. At the same time, they're not hidden things. The things that we are to search and we are to give attention to and that you are good to us. You are generous with us to give to your people who seek you will find you. Lord, may you be found by your church this morning. Thank you, Lord. We 
pray this in your name and with a request that you do, do your work among your people and all those who are gathered. Amen. This morning, uh, the title of the sermon uh, is a, an interesting one. It's one that I actually kind of stumbled on as I was studying the scripture this week. The title of the sermon is The Church in a Boat. In my study this week, I ran across an interesting little detail from Christian history. That interesting little detail is uh, the early Christian artists would depict the disciples very often in a boat, and often when they would do these paintings, the boat was little more than a, than a little bathtub. And you have all 12 disciples all kind of crammed into this boat on a stormy sea, and Jesus is sort of in the midst of the picture as the commander, the master of the situation. In these paintings, the disciples would look storm-tossed, bewildered, and if anything, they looked like they were in need of rescue. I hope right now you have a, an image of 12 men in a little bathtub floating on the Sea of Galilee, right? That's the image that you really should have if you're paying attention to the scriptures so far. A storm-distressed, bewildered group of disciples in need of rescue, if you've been following the story of Mark thus far in his gospel, it's an apt description. The ministry of the disciples, ministry of Jesus has been a roller coaster. Only Jesus has shown himself to be in command of each scenario. It turns out that the ancient church not only conceived of the disciples in that way, but they actually imagined the whole of the church as sort of carried along in a turbulent boat, bewildered and in need of rescue. For the church, really from its founding, we have sort of paid, if you pay attention to the story of Christian history, the church is seen as a storm-tossed people and yet cared for by a Christ who is with us and visits us with his glory and his salvation. But what's our role to play? Just hang on to the bathtub, you know, and wait for rescue. Now, one more detail. I found this fascinating. Evidence in church history that this is exactly how uh, the church is to be conceived is uh, evidence that the church, in church history, that we are a storm-tossed people in need of rescue in a flimsy boat is often found in the name of the part of the building in which the congregation itself would gather. You never guess what that section of the, of the cathedrals and the, the gathering places of the people of God is called where the congregation sits. It's the nave. Like, thank you, that was really helpful. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it turns out that the word nave is Latin for boat. Where does the congregation gather? In a boat, in a storm-tossed world, awaiting rescue. Brothers and sisters, this story is a story of us, and ch the church throughout history has looked at it and said, these disciples, this is us. This is the church in a storm-tossed boat. We're hidden away in an ark with disaster, judgment everywhere everywhere around us but the lord sees us and he descends from his mountain to be with us and when he descends from his mountain to go and be with us he reveals his glory to us and you'll see that in just a moment 
And he rescues us by his very presence with us in the boat. Let's turn to the text and see how these events take place as we work our way through. If you look, the first thing that we see is Jesus made his disciples go. It happens right away. It's in verse 45. Look at it with me. Immediately. There's Mark again. Things happen fast. This story's moving. Immediately, right after the feeding of the 5,000, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Here, we have to remember disciples where we were last week. The disciples are again being sent across the Sea of Galilee as they crisscross their way back and forth to these two regions of ministry. And we remember where we left off last week. A crowd of men from surrounding towns and villages had come out to Jesus. And they come out to him in a deserted place. And they were hungry. And the Lord fed, fed them and taught the disciples something that they didn't fully understand, as we saw in our passage at the end of our reading today. Now this region that this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 takes place in is noted for its rebellious and revolutionary political tendencies. It's known for that. The other gospel accounts make it clear that the people who are gathered to Jesus in this deserted region, they're not there to hear his teaching. And perhaps they may not even be there to see more miracles. They've seen enough. And what they've seen is that they have seen the opportunity for a political revolution. They found their king. This is the one. And they're going to go make him king by force. But Jesus, when he sees the crowds coming to him, what does he do? He sits them down and he begins to teach. Because let's remember the... Gospel of Mark presents very clearly that Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Oh, he'll be king. He'll be king, but you have to understand the gospel to understand how the Lord is king, how he calls a people to himself. And Jesus sits them down. He begins to teach them. He provides for them. And he provides for the crowd, and then he sees, as the crowd is there to make him king, he also sees the need to break up the crowd, or they're going to start breaking upon him. What would appear to be true is that in the passage, while you have all these revolutionaries gathering around Jesus, and now they're provided for by him, that the disciples could so easily become puffed up and say, yeah, that's right, we're like the inner court for the king of a great revolution. Jesus sees it and he sees that perhaps they're caught up in this revolutionary fervor and he, so he decides to send them away forcefully. Now this is a little bit veiled in our translation. There's a few things in this scripture that are accurately translated. The words that we receive here are true, but maybe some of the force of the language gets lost in translation, okay? Verse 45, it says, Immediately, he made his disciples. The, the word is literally, he gave them orders. He made his disciples, can, can be translated, he pressured or forced them to get into the boat. You get the impression that the disciples weren't ready to leave, they were ready to join the revolution. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not the inner court of some worldly king. You're going to go get in a boat, and you're going to find out what your place is in this world. And I'm going to ascend a mountain, 
and be with my father. Mark could not have been more clear that Jesus was ordering his disciples against their will. Jesus would remain to send the crowd away and go and be with the father. And that's the, the next thing that we see. Jesus went to pray. Look at verse 46. He forcefully sends away the disciples. And then after he had taken leave of them, that is the disciples and the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. The boat alone and out to sea with his little church and their little boat. And Jesus is with the Father. It was surely a regular practice for the Lord to go, to be with the Father, to spend time in prayer. But there are actually only three specific instances in which it records for us the events of Jesus going off to pray. We have the specific instance of when he called the disciples. The second instance we have is the night of his arrest before his crucifixion. We have Jesus going off to pray. And then we have this night. I think that's interesting because those other two nights are very significant moments in Jesus's history. The launch of his public ministry and the calling of disciples to himself and the great climax, literally the crooks of his ministry in the crucifixion. And then there's this night. They're all key, key moments of, of moving forward the redemptive messianic purpose of the king. I think that's instructive for us. If we have a regular pattern of abiding with our Father in heaven, when we find ourselves in moments of testing, we will easily find ourselves in a place of comfort and strength. The Lord had a regular pattern of going off to be with the Father. So that when we have these moments that are sort of worthy of note, where is he? He's with the Father, receiving the strength and the comfort that he needs. How did the Lord continue to fix his eyes toward Jerusalem? The gospel authors often speak of him fixing his eyes and going toward Jerusalem, even though he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that his purpose is to give his life as a ransom for many. How did he remain fixed on that? Because he went to be with the Father. Jesus sought and experienced regular and genuine communion with the will and the joy of the Father. How will you walk in the will of the Lord for you? Be with the Father. Spend time with the Lord. Verse 48, it reads, And he saw, as he's on the mountain, he looked out over the sea and over his disciples, he saw that he, they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. Now, there's a kind of a big sentence that was at the end of that little phrase that we need to pay attention to. We'll get there. But the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus saw the disciples. While Jesus is with the Father and the Spirit in prayer, he remains vigilant to watch over the boat. Friends, that is an image 
we should carry with us in every aspect of our Christian life. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship, communion forever, watching over the disciples in a storm-tossed boat. He remains vigilant. He sees them. He sees their struggle. He makes special note that he saw them making way painfully in the way upon which he sent them. Note that. Why are they out there on that storm-tossed night? Was it an accident? No. He sent them to go be out on that sea that night. And there they are, and he sees them. Mark presents Jesus as the Lord who sees. He sees all the time. He's the Lord who opens his eyes to the lostness of the crowds and the the storm-tossed nature of his disciples in the midst of fearful trials. He sees those who follow after him. I want you to hold that image with you as you move through this life. The Lord sees you. Again, our translations are good and accurate and reliable and yet a bit of a veil of the strength of the words. That phrase, make headway painfully, is literally to be in torment. That same word torment is is the sort of the strength of word that's used for those who suffer in hell. This is not that, that, you know, they were having to work hard to really get anywhere. This was a torturous endeavor that the Lord had sent them out on and that they were caught up in, and he sees them. They were fighting the wind, They were fighting the waves. The sea spray was in their eyes and they're laboring at their oars as some translations put it to give us an image that they're not going anywhere by means of the comfort of the wind. They're only getting anywhere by their own torture of their own bodies and the fear that's pressing them forward. For an entire night's worth of painful labor, they'd gotten a mere three to four miles, John tells us three to four miles out. And it turns out that they were in the, what, the third watch of the night. It was around three to six o'clock a.m. And why were they out there? Why were they out there, and not in the middle of the night, at the end of the night, after laboring all night long at sea, because Jesus had forcefully sent them away to suffer in a terrible storm. Like, sit in that for a minute. They knew. Don't tell me that it never crossed their mind one time, 12 of them, none of them thought, if Jesus didn't just let us stay back, eat some leftover bread and fish, maybe even go back to one of the houses in one of the nearby towns with the people who were ready to make him king, we could be treated like kings. And he tells us to go out in the boat, and he's back on dry land. Jesus knows, but did he care? They've asked that question before. Do you not care that we perish? Don't you care that we're dying here? Don't you care that we're in torment, Jesus? They've asked questions like that before, and somewhere around 3 to 6 a.m., Jesus looks, he discerns their need for his presence, right? And then he goes. He goes to them. But what he brings them is far more than simple help for the journey. I just want to step aside for a moment and pay, pay attention to the reality that Jesus had sent them out there and that they had actually obeyed. 
They were out there because Jesus told them to do something, and they did it. And their reward is to be storm-tossed in a torturous, fearful moment all night long. Kent Hughes, again, super helpful to me, he pointed out something that I found particularly compelling about these events. The disciples were in this predicament precisely because they had obeyed Jesus. Here's Kent Hughes' quote. It was obedience that made them so uncomfortable. Just pause. Did you hear it? I mean, doesn't, doesn't obedience merit you a little bit of comfort from God? Like, isn't that how we think? God, I obeyed you all week last week. I did my devotions. I didn't yell at the kids. I obeyed my parents. I, I did the right thing at work. Why is this week such a disaster? Right? That's how we tend to think about things, but it was their disobedience, their, their obedience that made them so uncomfortable on that sea that day. It was obedience that accounted for Helen Rosevere's amazing story of persecution during the 60s in Africa. It was obedience that landed Corey Tenboom in Ravensbrook. It was obedience that put four young missionaries through the rigors of captivity in Sudan. In all these cases, listen, their misery was their own fault. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart will never experience. Friends, there are things that Christian history have taught us. Christian history have taught us that the church, the congregation, the people of God are a tiny group of people huddled in a boat in need of rescue. And Christian history has taught us that it is a storm-tossed way in need of the presence of the Christ. But let me ask you this. If you know anything at all, and if you don't know, you can probably guess, anything at all about Helen Rosevere or Corey Ten Boom, or Peter, James, or John, if you would ask them if any of their obedience, have they ever had any regret? Did they ever regret going out on that sea that day? Not by the time the story's done. Not by the, in, brothers and sisters, insofar as we walk in faithfulness in the way of our master, our suffering is never a mistake. Our suffering is, is nearly assured, okay? Like I say, if Christian history has taught us anything, our suffering is almost assured, but it's never a mistake. It's never something to be regretted, and not one ounce of it is wasted. More likely, and some of you know this, it is in the midst of obedience and trial that the Lord reveals himself in ways that stagger our imagination. And more than even staggering our imagination at a sight of the glory of God in the midst of trial, he also prepares us for a layer of faithful obedience we had never imagined as well. That's exactly what Jesus does 
for the disciples here. Now make no mistake, the story's not over. We've got a lot of the gospel to get at. They didn't get it by the end of our passage, but Jesus had given it to them. He'd given them what they need. It says that Jesus passed by. Look at verse 48 with me. And he saw them making headway painfully. The wind was against them. The fourth watch, I said third earlier, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant, his intention was to pass by them. Pass by. Now this is a phrase I had missed. I've read this uh, this account of Scripture many times, but I didn't notice something that really anyone who is, who is well-versed in the Old Testament ought to know. The first thing that that tells me is I have a long way to go before being well-versed in the Scriptures. But the second thing that it tells me is that there's something powerful that, for us to learn. The word pass by in this passage is an important and specific Phrase. Jesus is doing something in these events to show us who he is. Listen, in the book of Job, Job is often seeking greater understanding of God. He is in the midst of a severe suffering. A severe suffering that comes in the context of beautiful obedience. Job keeps making the argument, I didn't do anything. All I did is I was going along, hanging out with my God. He told me to hop in a boat and go out on a sea, and then a storm came up, is essentially Job's argument. And in the midst of that trial, he's, he's trying to figure out, who is God? Who is he like? God, show me your glory. Show me who you are in the midst of this suffering, this faith-filled, obedient suffering. In one particularly important speech, often recounted by the people of God, Job is describing the glory, wisdom, and otherness of God. The godness of God, you might say. I'm going to read the whole account and see if you can catch it. Job chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. I'd encourage you, right next to where it says that he passed by in your Bible, right in the margin. Job chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. But how can a man be in the right before God? Now there's a question for you. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. If you tried to argue your righteousness before God, you couldn't answer God's argument against you one in a thousand. You can't contend. You can't be right. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? See, Jesus is doing something profound, 
And make no mistake, the disciples and the people of God in this time were far more faithful than you and I to know the word. They knew Job, and they knew in reflection upon what Jesus did in their midst on that day, as many of the gospel writers give an account of this story, they knew that Jesus had given the disciples a theophany, a sighting of God. He was giving them a vision of God as God passed them by. He was giving them a glimpse of his glory. He wasn't telling them. He was showing them that just like God had revealed himself to Moses and Elijah and Job, that he was passing by them to show them his glory. Jesus' intention in this passage is to pass by them in the midst of the storm, trampling upon the waters, right? One commentator says where the Gospel of John often has Jesus declaring himself to be God, Mark has Jesus demonstrating that he is God. That's what he's doing here. He's walking in the way of the revelation of the God of Scriptures, trampling upon the waves in the midst of a storm in which the disciples could make no headway. He passes them by and reveals his glory. And then he does this. Look at the passage again. The end of 48, going into 49, he passes them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They weren't getting it yet. They weren't seeing it yet. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Now again, accurate translation. I don't want to give you any cause not to believe what you're reading. It's what it says. And yet the words that are there in the Greek are ego emi. All right? Accurately translated, it is I. It's the meaning of the phrase. But the words that are there are I am. Friends, Mark is telling us something, and Jesus is revealing to his disciples something. What does Jesus, what does, what does the Lord do in the scriptures during the whole of the course of the scriptures, old and new? He's revealing to the people who he is. And when he gives his name to Moses, I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Lord, the I am, the God who tramples the waters. And then what does the I am do? If you see the I am, you're right to be afraid. You're right to recognize this isn't, this isn't some human walking on water, right? This has got to be a ghost. This is something outside of our normal experience. What does the I am do? He gets in the boat, friends. The I am who tramples the water in the midst of the storm gets in the boat. The disciples have experienced things that blew their mind that messed them up a little bit. Back in Mark chapter four, they say this, they were filled, when, when Jesus calms, peace, be still, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They could add to that now, who is this? This 
I am who tramples upon the waters when he passes by. The disciples, when they have seen his power, they often ask, who then is this? And really from, from roughly around this episode of John the Baptist, where, where John the Baptist and Herod have this encounter and the people are wondering who, who, who John the Baptist is and who it is that comes after him. Who is this Jesus? Is he simply a, a, a resurrected ghost of John the Baptist or is he a prophet or a teacher? The question begins to be, be asked in this section of Mark, who is this? Is he a revolutionary political king? Is he a great teacher or a miracle worker? Or according to Jesus' own self-revelation, is he the I am? Is he the Lord himself? You see, the people, they really thought that Jesus was something. Perhaps you do too. You're impressed with Jesus. They, they were ready to crown him. The disciples thought that they made quite the decision to decide to follow after this unproven upstart rabbi. Boy, we really nailed it with this one, right guys? At the feeding of the 5,000, surely they thought to themselves, look at him. <laughs> look at us, right? They were killing it. They'd made a good decision in life. But Jesus hasn't even begun to show them who he is. And the place where they needed to see who he is was in a storm-tossed boat so that they would know who they are. And where the Lord passes by so that they would know who he is. And then he gets in the boat. The disciples could handle Jesus the powerful they could handle Jesus, the miraculous leader. But Jesus, the divine son of God, the passage ends by telling us they were astounded and their hearts were hard. This was a difficult teaching. There's much that's difficult about this teaching. But the most difficult thing about this teaching is Jesus is the Lord God, the creator of all things. And he has taken on flesh walked upon the waters, and made his home with his people. This is a difficult teaching. The passage says as the disciples' hearts were hard in verse 52. It's an interesting phrase. They didn't understand the loaves. They didn't, it's not that they didn't see the miracle. It's not that they didn't believe the miracle. It isn't to say that they didn't think that Jesus had power. It's to say that they hadn't yet discerned who Jesus really was, that he's the bread of life. They didn't see that yet. They didn't see that he is the manna in the wilderness. He is the great provision for the people. They didn't see that Jesus is the I am, and it's gonna take a while. It's gonna take quite a collection of chapters for us and they to truly see who Jesus is. I would ask you just a few questions as we close. What do you expect out of Jesus? This is the moment where I'm, I'm not a particularly good preacher. This is, the, this is the moment where I think where better preachers are able to, to give you a couple of examples of things that you might expect from Jesus. I'm not particularly good at that, and so I'm just gonna make you do the work. I actually want you to think about it. I asked a question. What do you expect of Jesus? 
when you come to him, when you say you want to know more about Jesus, when you say you want to go worship, when you say you want to read your Bible or pray or something, what do you expect is happening in those places? I don't know for you. I know it's a difficult question to ask my own heart. What do you expect of Jesus? Because the fact is, Jesus is who he is. He is not what you expect of him. And that, friends, is the hardest lesson of faith. Because we have to lay down, and he has to be lifted up. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God made flesh. That's who he's told us that he is. He's the image of the invisible God. That's who he has told us that he is. He alone is able to rescue his storm-tossed church. That's who he is. He's the one who sees his church. He's the one who comes to his church. He's the one who loves those who follow after him. And he loves to rescue them. And we see it over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. His rescue comes in the form of his presence with us. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, it's our hope that we see Jesus. It's our joy, our joy that we have been seen by him. And I'm amazed that the disciples spent all this time with Jesus, and yet they didn't yet see him. You see, what it tells me is it's valid, though I've spent almost my entire life in the church listening to the preachers and preaching. Perhaps I ought to ask myself, have I seen Jesus? And do I understand what it means to be seen by him? Would I humble myself, lay down my expectations, and be literally taught by the master himself? Let me tell you this morning, you have this morning a far less powerful teacher, but you have no less of an authoritative word. Your knowledge of Jesus doesn't hang on how well I can preach. Your knowledge doesn't even rest on how well you can read. Your knowledge of Jesus hangs on this one thing, Will you humble yourself in faith to receive him as he is? He is the I am. He tramples the waves. He passes by to show us his glory. And he's with his people. Friends, that requires a humility and a faith. James Edwards in his commentary writes, discipleship, is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than external dangers. The disciples were scared of a storm. Silly men. They ought to have been afraid of the one who tramples the waves. And then they saw him get in the boat. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, we would see you, that, that you've actually loved us, that that your love for us doesn't come simply by sending us out into still waters. Your love for us does not come by giving us the, some easy life. Lord, your love comes for us by your coming to be with us, to rescue us to yourself, 
that we need to die to ourselves and to our expectations in this world before we can find life forever in you and be rescued to the place of perfect peace. Really, we need forgiveness of sin, Lord. We need the grace to be reborn to a living hope. We thank you, Lord, that you have done this in the work of the cross. The cross is the time that you not only got in the boat, but you took our place, that you suffered our death, our final death, so that we could be rescued to the righteousness that you have purchased for us in the Christ, so that there is no fear in the storm any longer. There's only rescue by the Redeemer. I pray for everyone here that we would confess this, that we would learn to to be humbled in faith before the cross, the great ark for the people of God, that we would be kept safe in you. And Lord, for the one who is still straining at the oars, making their way painfully through this world, I pray that you would humble that heart, that you would soften the hardened And that you would birth faith, humility, grant forgiveness of sin, and peace to know that you are with us. Lord, this is our hope. This is our prayer that you would do this in the midst of the whole of the church and in the whole of the community in which you have placed us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus, the I am who is with us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.